I was going through airport security yesterday in Amsterdam, and I stuck all my things through the x-ray machine, and the security officer told me to step aside. She was going to have to look through my backpack. And I didn't think anything of it because I usually get a lot of special attention when I go through airport security for some reason. But I sat down and started putting on my boots. After I laced up my second boot, I noticed that there were five or six other security officers that had gathered around and she was digging through my backpack and it appeared that there was something in particular she was looking for and I wasn't quite sure what it was, but I started getting worried. And she finally found what she was looking for she pulled out a butter knife and held it up above her head, and everybody started laughing. She started laughing, all the other officers started laughing, and I realized a couple days earlier, I'd taken all of the food from backstage and shoved it into my backpack like I do sometimes, because I'm kind of cheap, and I must have stuck this butter knife in there without realizing it. But after they laughed for a little while, she smiled at me really big, and. She says, I guess you need this back. So she stuck the butter knife back in my backpack, handed it to me, and I got on the plane. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my hotel room in London and it's a pretty crappy hotel room if I could say so. One thing about London hotels is you're going to pay way too much and not get very much for it. But I had a really good week of gigs in Belgium and Holland before this and I'm looking forward to winding out this UK run. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. And this is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Marshall Crenshaw. Marshall is a singer-songwriter who lives in New York. And you can find out everything you need to know about Marshall at marshallcrenshaw.com. I caught up with Marshall in a hotel room in Atlanta, Georgia, and it was early in the morning. He'd played the night before, and he was about to drive six hours to do a gig in Florida. But he was a gamer. And he was nice and uh, sat down with me. And we had a really nice conversation that I think you're going to enjoy. There's Marshall Crenshaw. The Detroit area is where I'm from. I never say that I'm from Detroit because I didn't grow up in the city. I grew up in the suburbs. And uh, Eight Mile Road is the northern boundary line of the city of Detroit. I grew up between 11 and 12 Mile Road, so I'm right outside of the city. But it was weird. I mean, uh, Detroit's kind of a, the Detroit area is kind of a quirky place, you know. And I just remember uncles of mine and neighbors and people, you know, adults that would brag to each other about how they hadn't been in the city of Detroit since the end of World War II. They would say all kinds of terrible things about the people who lived in the city of Detroit. And uh, there's a real 
like a sort of like a cold war almost between the burbs and the city of Detroit, you know. And I happen to love the city of Detroit, so I don't, I don't feel like I can claim it. A lot of rock musicians from the Detroit area over the years, they just say, yeah, we're from Detroit. But, you know, I can't say that. I can't say I'm from Detroit. Even I mean, the hospital that I was born in was in the city of Detroit, but I grew up in, in the town I grew up in is called Berkeley, B-E-R-K-L-E-Y. When you were a kid, were you aware of all the music history of Detroit? Well, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't aware of it as music history, but it was just like, yeah, it's a, it's a very musical place somehow, you know. I just sort of, I guess I chalk it up to the fact that there are lots of uh, transplanted Southerners in the Detroit area and people from all different kinds of places. It's, a, it, it, it's sort of like a, a melting pot that hasn't melted, or, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. There is, there's a, there's a, like a lack of cohesion in the community. There's a lot of polarization, but, but there's a, you know, like a real varied mix of people there. And, um, uh, somehow or another, it's just a great place for music. Um, also when I was growing up there, the Detroit had, had a sense of pride about itself. And, uh, so anytime there was anything local, Musically, that was uh, making any sort of noise. There was always a lot of support for it among the home team, you know, the home folks. Like there was a guy when I was a kid named Jack Scott, rockabilly. You know, people think of him now as a rockabilly singer. He had a bunch of hit records when I was a kid, and I still like those records. Um, Jackie Wilson, you know, there was just, you were aware that there were a lot of rock stars that were local people you know and uh it was something that made you proud and that continued as i got older you know because in motown by the time i was about nine or ten years old I, I was really aware of motown the early records like uh playboy by the marvelettes and what's so good about goodbye by the miracles i just i loved those records i knew that they came from Detroit. I looked in the Detroit phone book and saw that the address of Motown was 2648 West Grand Boulevard, and I lived at 2648 Phillips Avenue in Berkeley. So I thought that that was cool. You know, that like, <laughs> yeah. I was I was conscious of that. So yeah, I was. And, and you know, just beyond what I'm just what I've just named, there was tons more music, all kinds of stuff. The first time I saw the MC5, I was at this thing called the Teen Fair. They used to have these things in, back in the 60s called Teen Fairs. And, uh, you know, you'd go, it was like in a big exhibition hall. It was in the basement of Cobo Hall. And you would just kind of wander around. Like There may be like one booth where there'd be a fashion show. And then you go to the next one and it's like an army recruiter place. And then, you know, different things that appeal to teens or whatever. And... Uh, so I'm wandering around this teen fair, and there are a couple stages with, with rock bands. And I wander over, and I see this band on stage, but they're just standing there. They're not doing anything, you know. And I'm just kind of looking at them, and they look really look the part. They really look like a, like a rock band, you know, very cool. Their instruments were cool, you know, and they just were standing there. Nothing's happening. And then after a while, the lead singer comes out, Rob Tyner, right? And uh, 
He says, you know, very polite. He says, well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm, I'm sorry, I apologize, but we can't play because they won't let us turn the amplifiers up all the way. And if we can't play our music the way we want to play it, then we just can't play. So they just walked off and that was it. And that was the first time I ever saw them. And, uh, and then a little while later, I saw them on TV, local TV. You can see this clip on YouTube now. In my mind, it was the Lou Gordon show, but I can't remember what show it was because on the YouTube clip, I don't see Lou Gordon. Lou Gordon was this kind of right-wing, like Morton Downey Jr. type local Detroit personality, you know. But anyway, he had the MC5 on just to show, you know, the horrors of contemporary youth culture, you know. And <laughs> again, you can see this clip on YouTube. So I saw that appearance, and uh, and then the first time I saw them live was my dad took my brother Mitchell and I to see the Jimi Hendrix experience at Masonic Auditorium in Detroit when I was 14 and my brother was 12. And uh, and the first act that came up was a group called The Time, T-H-Y-M-E, kind of a folk rock group. And then after that was the MC5 and they just put the whole thing in their back pockets, stole the show basically, blew the place apart. And so, uh, you know, I still, <laughs> I still, uh, talk about that whenever anybody asks me about rock concerts that i've been to that i like you know and then i i met wayne in new york i met him through the was brothers oh no that's not right i'm sorry let me backtrack on that um wayne i met wayne in new york the first time i actually talked to him was at um uh, somebody had this party in, De in new york that was supposed to be like a reunion of detroit area people in new york and um uh, I just bumped into Wayne in the hallway someplace, and we had this really nice conversation. He was super friendly, and by then I was already—I was kind of known around New York by that time. You know, I was already like making some noise locally. So we just, you know, spoke to one another as uh, as peers, kind of. You know, but to me, he was a rock star. Even then, you know, but we're friends. He's a great guy. We like each other. About 1977, I just realized that I was doing nothing with my life and that I was in a rut and uh, that I had exhausted all possibilities for myself in the Detroit area. And, it, you know, it, it's, I should have figured that out before I did figure it out, you know. Like, I just kind of wasted a lot of time. I don't know what I was thinking, but <clears throat> anyway, I got it just dawned on me all of a sudden when I was about 23 that I needed to uproot myself and get out. And uh, there was just, a, I had a, like 750 reasons to leave and no reasons to stay except maybe one or two. But uh, so I did, I, what happened was I bumped into a friend of mine that I'd gone to high school with and I hadn't seen him in a while, like a few years, you know, this guy's name was Ron Katz and, uh, I say, hey, Ron, where you been? How you doing? And, and he uh, told me that he was living in Los Angeles about half the year, and then the other half the year he was up in Alaska playing in a bar band for the pipeline workers. And uh, and he said, hey, I think our guitar player's leaving. You know, we might need somebody. And I just and that was all it took. It was just one person giving me a reason to leave and a specific way to leave. So I left. You know, <laughs> <laughs> went to Los Angeles, and I didn't get the gig in Ron's band, 
which is probably a good thing. And then I wound up in a different band and toured uh, all through the West for several months. Um, and then uh, in the middle of all that, I, I saw the classified ad for Beatlemania auditions. I called the number. It was a 212 number. Arranged to send in a picture and a tape, and which I did. And then I got hired, let's see, around Christmas time of that year, which I, again, I think was 1977. I went back to back home to my parents' house for Christmas. And then I, I married my girlfriend. She and I talked on the phone. Just, I asked her to marry me, so we got married. And then just then I got a call from New York, and they wanted to come and audition me which is kind of cool, you know, it was like one of those magical phone calls like in the movies, you know. So then I wound up in New York, you know, I had headed west thinking that that's where I was going to wind up. At the time I got hired by Beatlemania, I also was accepted into this music school in L.A., which is still there. It's called the Musicians Institute, but when I was going maybe going to go... It was called the Guitar Institute of Technology. So I was either going to go to the Guitar Institute of Technology <laughs> in L.A. or go be a fake Beatle in New York, and I chose New York. And the day that I got to New York, um, <clears throat> the night or the day, you know, within about 16 hours, I, I fucking, I completely fell in love with the city. And uh, Iona had been there already, She, but she got right on board with that. We just really... You know, even at that time, New York was in it was in bad shape. It, it was just coming out of the like uh, the A Beam administration, like just you know a really terrible period for the city. But we still thought that it was Disneyland. You know, there was a garbage strike about a month after we got there, like that lasted three or four weeks. You know, garbage bags lining. I mean, it was the city was like a sewer almost at the time, and we just thought we were. We just loved it, you know. Did you live through blackouts or anything like that? We missed that. There was a blackout just before we got there. Uh, so I didn't experience that. But anyway, we just really dug it and stayed in it. And uh, I stayed in Beatlemania for close to two years and then decided to get out of that. And uh, by then I was aware of the like the rock scene in New York, the local rock scene in Manhattan and I was really interested in that pretty soon we were part of it you know I was I was really happy during that period when we had become we became sort of like dare I say like the top local rock band in Manhattan for a little while all our gigs were jam-packed you know and uh you know it was just the excitement that was surrounding all of that was was just it was like our second youth actually which was much better than our first because uh, we were in New York, you know, and it was, we were a little older and wiser, but it was, it was just wild times and uh, I just loved it, you know, I really loved it. I was really proud of us. There's a video on YouTube um, I, I was watching. I'm friends with Kevin Gordon. But there's a video on YouTube of uh, one of his songs of Keith Richards and Levon Helm and uh, Rick Danko and um, Scotty Moore, I think DJ Fontana. They're playing the song. There's a lot of still photos from Jim Harrington. 
And somewhere in those photos, I believe I saw you playing bass. Oh, yeah, yeah, correct. I was there. Um, that was, I forget the year. It was ni- early 90s, I think, early 1990s. By that time, we were living in Woodstock. We moved up to Woodstock at the beginning of 1987. And, uh, yeah, you know, I just, there wasn't a lot of, social activity or there was not really much of a scene in Woodstock that I was aware of, you know, but there was that one night when uh, a friend of mine called me up and it was the guy who produced the whole thing. His name's Dan Griffin. And he called and invited me and I went over there and uh, at Levon's studio and it was a recording session for this record that Dan was putting together called all the King's men, you know, the featured, uh, Artists on the record were DJ Fontana, Paul Burleson, and uh, Scotty Moore. Keith Richards was there. Levon, Stan Lynch from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers was producing the record. It was a great hang. Uh, I met Keith. He was really friendly. He said some nice things to me. Um, was he aware of, uh, of who you were? Well, I'll tell you what he said. This is what he said to me. I'm shaking his hand. I'm being introduced. And he goes, oh, yes. And he said somebody had given him a mix cassette of my stuff, you know. And he said that the last time he looked for it, he couldn't find it. And he said, that's when you know something's good is when somebody steals it from you. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was was impressed. I thought, you know, this guy's really sharp, you know. It was like a really sweet thing to say. You know, just like a really clever way to pay somebody a compliment. He doesn't, you know, he's just meeting me, and I thought it was—I I thought he was great. And I, I really dug the shoes he was wearing too. These kind of green crocodile boots, and they were really badass shoes. And it was just a fun night. It was like one of the few nights I can remember when I was living in Woodstock that was like that. You know, where it was just people hanging out, and you feel like you're part of something, you know, big. And it was really cool. Um. And we did a little bit of playing. I did. I don't think anything that I played on was recorded. But at one point, uh, here's another little sidebar thing to that. There's a guy named Tony Russell who might still be Keith's personal assistant. I'm not sure. But uh, Tony Russell, you know, when I knew him, everybody called him TR. And he worked some gigs with me, you know, just some weekend gigs. And when I saw him, I had at the key, at this recording session. I hadn't seen him in a while, and he came running up to me, threw his arms around me, and said, "Man, it's." Um, he said that what happened was he had gone up to my accountant's office the Monday after the weekend that he worked with me, and he had some money that he had to give to the accountant. And while he was in the office, he heard about the Keith Richards gig, and got it. You know, so he was crediting me for the fact that he. <laughs> Got hired, but it was just silly, but you know. Yeah. Anyway, that's it was just that kind of atmosphere, very friendly, and everybody's having a great time. It was cool. Was that the only time you were around Levon? No. I, later on down the road, um, Levon started having those shows, the Midnight Rambles. And, the, you know, I said before that there was never much of a scene when I lived in Woodstock, but when the Rambles started to happen, that created a scene because like everybody was aware of the ramble people in the in the in that area you know the woodstock area just like everybody knew about it everybody had a sense of pride about it and i started going to the rambles you know i i was 
I went to four or five of them as a spectator, and then I played myself at the, at the Midnight Ramble, November of 2009. New, you know, I know lots of people that play in the Levon Band. In fact, I'm going to do something uh, with Jimmy Vivino on February 9th at, at one of the Rambles. They still have it, even though Levon's gone. But uh, anyway, so yeah, I mean, I've I've had some contact with. I knew Rick Danko pretty well. Played some shows with him in the area. Have any Rick Danko's anecdotes or stories? Well, it's just that the first time I met him, you know, I'd, I'd heard different things about him. I hope this doesn't sound untoward, but you know, I was just slightly worried about about what he was going to be like, you know, and in it, you know, like it before the before the show, we all kind of gathered in this restaurant called the uh, Little Bear, which was one of Albert Grossman's restaurants. And uh, and then all of a sudden, Rick comes in. You know, we're all sitting at the table, and he's the last to arrive, and he's got this six-pack in his hand, you know. And I thought, okay, here we go. You know, he's kind of a, like a bearish guy, kind of lumbering around, you know. And then he sits down. Uh, you know, I met him, and then just, I, you know, right away I kind of dug him, just his vibe. And uh, it turns out that the six-pack was ginger beer, it wasn't beer, it was ginger beer, and he gave me one, and it was delicious. And uh, so, no, I liked him a lot. He was really a sweet person, you know, really sad about, uh, you know, I mean, he just, he died young and lived hard, lived fast, and died young, which, uh, you know, to me, there's nothing uh, glamorous about that or anything. I don't dig that whole idea of people being elegantly wasted and all that bullshit mythology you know that doesn't appeal to me self-destruct self-destructive people are sad to me they're not you know they're not heroic to me they're sad but i really liked him he was he was great we, we were in two movies that year um Within an 11-month period, I was in two movies. So then I got my SAG card. That was a good thing. Um, the first one was this one called Peggy Sue Got Married with Kathleen Turner and Nicolas Cage. So we got hired to be in one of the scenes as a, a rock band at a high school class reunion. If you see the movie, you see us up there in the beginning, the first 15, 20 minutes. And... Uh, the guy who wrote the script was a guy named Jerry Leishling, really nice guy, and uh, he liked my first two albums a lot. He showed me an early draft of the script where I was a character. I was, you know, the boyfriend of the daughter of Kathleen Turner's character, but that draft of the script, you know, I, I, I didn't wind up in the as a character in the movie, but, you know, he just told me that he'd always had this idea that we would be in the movie. So we were, and that was, you know, pretty crazy and pretty cool. It was my first time on a film set. Um, and then, La I don't know if I already knew about La Bamba by that time, but La Bamba, it was just one of those things that happened, you know, just a lot of things that happened, you know, like uh, a lot of film-related stuff happened right away. That's always been really good to me, you know, the film and uh, rock 
interface. You know, that's a, it's been a good thing for me in a lot of ways. But uh, anyway, I just got this call from a, a friend of mine that I'd gone to high school with who was out in Hollywood trying to make it as an actor, a guy named Carl Bressler. And he's, you know, done a lot, done some film work, done a lot of stuff. And uh, he called me and told me that he'd heard a rumor that they were going to ask me to play Buddy Holly in this movie. And uh, I, I didn't know how to take it at the time. But then, you know, a couple weeks later, there it was. I got the call. I got the script. And uh, I can't remember now who called me from the movie, but it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just sort of like a production assistant or anything. It was like, I think the director called me or maybe Taylor Hackford called me, you know, as somebody really asking me nicely to do this, you know. <laughs> and so I said, yeah, you know, and I liked it. I, you know, it was, it was, I liked the script when I read it and it was a great movie. Like, you know, there've been a lot of those musical, how do you say, biopic or biopic, you know, there've been a lot of those over the years and La Bamba was one of the few of, of those that actually was a hit movie and it was a number one movie and it was a number one soundtrack album, which is really huge at the time, you know. I was glad I did it. I just, you know, the whole, the scene that I'm in, it was really imp a lot of improv, you know, like they, they had that line that I say about the sky belonging to the stars, but just the way that I reach back and swat Richie with my glove and do all that stuff. That was all just, we did the scene like three or four times and I just found myself improvising, you know, it was just very cool. Well, how does uh, how do you end up getting the call for things like that? Is it just the people who are making it are fans, or you just happen to be in the the circle, or I just had a lot of visibility at that time, you know. And uh, <clears throat> if you remember the the movie La Bamba, you know, like Brian Setzer is in the movie as Eddie Cochran, right? And uh, there's a fellow named Howard Huntsbury in the movie who plays Jackie Wilson, and he earlier, like a year or so before La Bamba, he'd had a hit record on R&B radio with a cover of Doggin' Around, Jackie Wilson, you know. So, like, he was the Jackie Wilson guy. Brian was the Eddie Cochran guy. I was the Buddy Holly guy. Because, you know, because a lot of critics had made that comparison when my first album came out between me and Buddy Holly. And so that's all. They just, like, my mother has this Frisbee on her wall that's one of her students brought her that they'd gotten in Florida at the Daytona beach or something like that. And it was a promotional Frisbee from La Bamba. <laughs> <laughs> Why Black a and purple. Yeah. I don't know. But you know, I guess they, they handed out Frisbees to the college kids during spring break or whatever they call that thing in Daytona. And it says, see La Bamba this summer with Bryant Setzer, Marshall Crenshaw. You know, they were just, it was just another little hook in the movie. I don't have any stories about John C. Riley, but I just, after my song was already in the movie, I happened to be out in <clears throat> LA while they were shooting the movie, and I, I decided that I wanted to go to the set and just hang around a little bit and meet people. This is Walk Hard? Yeah, this is Walk Hard. This is 1990 whatever it was. No, it's 2006, I think. 
and I hadn't been on a movie set since La Bamba, you know, so I just wanted a chance to go and hang out because I, the few times that I was, that I've been on film sets, I just find it really exciting. You know, it's just like this beehive of creativity and that's, you know, unless it's a crappy film shoot, but you know, it's just, it's fun to be on a movie set. So I went over to the studio and uh, watched them shoot this scene and walk hard. It was a, a scene that I think did not end up in the movie, but you know, it was just my chance to meet Jake uh, Kasdan, the director, and John C. Riley. Uh, you know, he was a sweet guy, very nice. Um, I went to the. <laughs> this is a story about Walk Hard. I went to the premiere, you know, at at Man's Chinese Theater, and they had a. Uh, you know, it was a big, big event. They had billboards all over L.A. for Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. Saw the film, you know, at the premiere and then went to the premiere party afterwards. And, the, and this party cost millions of dollars, I'm sure. It was uh, in this big, big space. And they had the whole joint done up as like a hard rock cafe, but with all Dewey Cox memorabilia, you know. <laughs> I mean, it was just super expensive for all this, you know. And then about three, maybe four weeks later, I saw Walk Hard for the second time in this shitty little screening room at a theater in Hyde Park, New York. It just <laughs> instantly went into the tank, Walk Hard. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Sad to say, but, uh, you know, it's had a lot of uh, love, you know, cult, cult love, a lot of DVD sales and you know, it's been on TV a bunch and stuff. It's had a little bit of a second life, but I mean, they really thought it was going to be a number one movie. And, uh, you know, I did too. And I just remember that first week when the box office numbers came out and I saw that it was like number 16 or something like that. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute, you know? <laughs> and then like two weeks later, it came out in Europe and I thought, okay, well, and the same thing, you know, Europe, it's like number 24 that week or something. Just show business is very mercurial, you know, because they pulled out all the stops to promote that thing. It's just, it's kind of, I guess that's a good, I don't know. You, when you see that that it doesn't always matter how much money you spend to hype something, you know, it either lives or dies on its own in the end, really, you know. But I had high hopes for that one, you know, and I liked all the people that were involved in it. So I was sad for them when it failed. I came out of it okay, you know, like I got paid pretty well for writing that song. I would have been paid better if the soundtrack album <laughs> was a hit, but it wasn't, you know. But I mean, I can't, I can't complain about it. I got a Golden Globe nomination and a Grammy nomination. And, uh, you know, it was nice. Yeah, at that, at that All the King's Men thing, <clears throat> before anything really got underway, I was sitting around with Paul Burleson from the Johnny Burnett rock and roll trio, you know? And, you know, he's got a guitar and I've got a guitar and we're just playing. He's singing Gene Autry songs and stuff. And I said, hey, man, why don't you show me that that really killer uh, lick from the solo of Lonesome Train on a Lonesome Track? And he just got this look of horror on his face. And he just kind of fudged, you know, the whole question and, that's when I knew that he hadn't played it on the record. That it's actually, I think, Grady Martin 
or somebody else, you know, on a lot of those Johnny Burnett records. All the ones where the, where it has that kind of fuzz tone solo where it's just real single note, real primitive kind of lead guitar, that's him. But like the sophisticated stuff is not him. He could barely he could barely play the guitar actually, you know. Wow. I was a little surprised by that. That probably happened a lot more than than we realized. Yeah. Back in I kind of think so. I thought oh, this is the big moment. I'm going to learn that lick cuz it's a really fantastic. I don't know if you know the solo on Lonesome Train on a Lonesome Track, but it's just a killer. And there's this one lick that I still can't figure out how to play. <laughs> but I guess I have to meet Grady Martin in order to... <laughs> if he still remembers it, I don't know. Well, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to chat with me, and uh, I hope your drive to Florida goes <laughs> nice and effortlessly. Well, thanks a lot. It's a six-hour drive, so I appreciate the good wishes. And it was great talking to you. Take care, Mark. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Marshall for meeting up with me in that hotel room in Atlanta. You can find out everything you need to know about Marshall at marshallcrenshaw.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com. You can pick up a CD, a T-shirt, You can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You can uh, buy one of Amy's CDs. You could buy Amy's children's book. Anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment on there. It'll just take you a few seconds, but it'll help us move up in the search rankings and help a lot more people find out about this show. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. But if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.